History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. Thank you to Paul from BC for your support of this episode. Today we're going back to the year 1837. In 1837, at Fort Snelling, which today is Minneapolis, the Chippewa, Sioux, and Winnebago people living in what are now parts of eastern Minnesota and northwestern Wisconsin signed a treaty with the United States government. This was before Canada as a country existed. It was before Louis Riel was hanged and before the American Civil War. This was when Apache warrior Geronimo was still just a child, but Shawnee leader Tecumseh had already lived and died decades earlier. Van Buren was the president in the White House. The West Coast gold rush had not yet occurred. There were still large herds of buffalo. The Oregon Trail was still an Indian footpath, but the Trail of Tears was by now well trodden. This was during the decade of the Indian Removal Act. The word Chippewa is a corruption of the word Ojibwe, which is a word that neighboring nations would have used to describe the Anishinaabe people. In other words, my people are the Anishinaabe. Neighboring people called us Ojibwe, and that was written down in treaties and so on as Chippewa. The word Ojibwe refers to the puckered seam of our moccasins. The 1837 treaty was primarily about timber resources, and it wasn't the first treaty between the United States and the people designated as Chippewa. Back in 1808, there was a treaty signed between the United States and the Chippewa of the eastern portion of Michigan Territory, as well as some Ottawa, Potawatomi, Wyandots, and Shawnee. The 1808 treaty was about linking American settlements with a road that had to run through Indian Territory. In the early 1800s, the eastern United States were ravenously growing. Interestingly, 1808 was also the year that politician and judge Jesse Fell of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania first burned anthracite coal on an air grate of his own design, proving that coal was a viable heating fuel. Fell's discovery helped fuel the American Industrial Revolution. About 10 years after that treaty and discovery, another land cession treaty went beyond road building. The 1819 treaty laid out the boundaries of Indian reservations in that area, described giving silver payouts to certain families, and also provided for the use of a blacksmith under the discretion of the President of the United States. Article 4 of the 1819 Treaty with the Chippewa states, quote, In consideration of the session aforesaid, the United States agree to pay to the Chippewa Nation of Indians annually forever the sum of $1,000 in silver, and do also agree that all annuities due by any former treaty to the said tribe shall be hereafter paid in silver. End quote. Twenty years after that treaty, the 1837 treaty was primarily about cheap and abundant timber resources in the Wisconsin area being transported eastward because the cost of timber in Pennsylvania and New York was so expensive. The times they were a-changing. In the early 1800s, south of the Great Lakes, the fur trade was giving way to large-scale timber empires. Henry Dodge was governor and superintendent of Indian Affairs for Wisconsin Territory and was involved in treaty negotiations. 
Dodge decried the necessity of purchasing the Timbrick country to avoid a war against the Indians. In 1837, the American army had only 5,000 soldiers, and many of them were already active in the Second Seminole War in what is now Florida. On top of that, the American government wanted the Chippewa to deal with them instead of with the British. Dodge wanted the treaty signing to be dealt with in a hurry, but had to wait several days before representatives of the land described in the session arrived. A man named Flatmouth from the Leech Lake region in what is now Minnesota reminded Dodge that for already assembled parties to take action before the interior Wisconsin people arrived would be an act in bad faith. In other words, for people to sign a treaty without the proper people being there would be unfair and improper. A chief from Snake River named Noden, which means the wind, also had to remind Henry Dodge to wait for a large group of interior Wisconsin people, saying, quote, We are a distracted people and have no regular system of acting together. We cast a firm look on the people who are coming. End quote. Chief Noden also said to Dodge, quote, When I look at you, it frightens me. I cannot sufficiently estimate your importance, and it confuses me. End quote. On July 25, 1837, the Wisconsin group of Chippewa arrived at the Parley. Now that the representative elders and headmen from the lands demarcated in the treaty, and even some people from beyond the lands demarcated, were all in attendance, very brief negotiations could be held. It is important to remember that much translating had to be done for everyone to communicate with each other. In fact, they were designated interpreters paid for by and acting on behalf of the United States government. There were always interpreters required at these treaty signings. Who were the interpreters? Translating from English into Chippewa were Stephen Bonga and Peter Quinn, and translating from Chippewa into English were Scott Campbell and Jean-Baptiste Dubay. Also present was Secretary Verplank Van Antwerp of Indiana, who hand-wrote the official proceedings. Henry Hastings Sibley was also a central figure in the negotiations. Sibley was born in Detroit in 1811. He worked for the American Fur Company in Mekinac, Michigan from 1829 to 1834. Then, in 1834, Sibley was promoted and moved to Mendota, Minnesota. He lived there until 1862. Mendota had always been an important trading post. Mendota is a Dakota word that means entry, and here refers to the confluence of rivers, which were natural meeting places. In 1819, the American military asserted its presence by establishing Fort Snelling. The area around Fort Snelling belonged to the Dakota people, specifically the Medewakanton Dakota. In the 1830s, there were several hundred Medewakanton Dakota living at Mendota. It was in 1839 that Sibley got married à la façon du pays to a Red Blanket Woman. Red Blanket Woman was the daughter of Bad Hale, chief of the Black Dog Band of the Medewakanton Dakota people. In 1841, Red Blanket Woman and Henry Hastings Sibley had a daughter named Helen in English and Waukee in Dakota. Soon after the birth of Helen, Sibley abandoned Red Blanket Woman. It was, after all, just a country marriage of political convenience. 
1843, Red Blanket Woman had died, perhaps of illness. Helen, the daughter of the Union, after the abandonment of her birth father and death of her mother, went to live with another family. Helen Wakie Sibley died of scarlet fever at age 20 years in 1859. A year earlier, in 1858, Henry Hastings Sibley became the first governor of Minnesota when it became an official state of the American Union. The so-called Dakota War began a few years after that. But in 1837, all of that was yet to happen. The 1837 treaty is known as the Pine Tree Treaty because of what the treaty details. On Friday, July 28, 1837, Chief Flatmouth from Leech Lake opened the day's proceedings by stating the following to negotiator Henry Dodge, who would have been expected to relate the desired terms to the president. Quote, My father, your children are willing to let you have their lands, but they wish to reserve the privilege of making sugar from the trees, getting their living from the lakes and rivers, as they have done heretofore, and of remaining in this country. It is hard to give up the lands. They will remain and cannot be destroyed, but you may cut down the trees, and others will grow up. You know we cannot live deprived of our lakes and rivers. There is some game on the lands yet, and for that reason also we wish to remain upon them to get a living. Sometimes we scrape the trees and eat of the bark. The great spirit above made the earth and causes it to produce, which enables us to live." End quote. By Sunday the treaty had been signed. The first chief to sign was Bogonik Gizik, whose name means hole in the day. He did a lot of talking, but not every chief agreed with him. Chief Noden made a formal complaint regarding Hole in the Day after the signing, saying, quote, There were many chiefs who spoke with the government at St. Peter's at the treaty. He does not own the land where I dwell. He is a mere child. End quote. There was much confusion at the treaty signing, and for years afterward there would be repercussions. A paragraph from a page on the website treatiesmatter.org sums up the negotiations and results thusly. Quote, the cession of pine forests led to abuses of Ojibwe timber rights for a century, as treaty signers, as well as many other powerful political figures, suddenly widened their business interests from the fur trade to timber. Ojibwe negotiators made it clear, however, that they were retaining rights to deciduous trees in the region, among other rights going so far as to lay an oak leaf in front of U.S. negotiator Henry Dodge to clarify their point. In fact, extensive evidence indicates that the Ojibwe believed that they were merely leasing use of the pine forests, and many refused to leave the ceded territory, preferring to stay and exercise the rights to land use that they retained in the treaty. An important U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 1999 upheld those rights." End quote. What was that Supreme Court ruling? The 1999 decision had to do with usufructory rights. Usufructory means the right to use or enjoy something. In this case, the usufructory rights refer to hunting, fishing and trapping, rice collecting and generally making a living from the land and waterways. So in the 1990s, the Millax Band of Chippewa filed an injunction against the state of Minnesota to prevent the state from interfering with those rights. The Supreme Court rejected the state's weak attempts at taking away those usufructory rights. For example, 
The state argued that the Chippewa extinguished their usufructory rights when Minnesota was entered into the American Union in 1858. That argument didn't hold up in court. In other words, the 1999 decision, which relies on the 1837 Pine Tree Treaty, declared that treaty rights are always retained, unless specific wording in treaties expressly abrogates those rights. My suggestion is to never give up your rights. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.